And I am Chris. And if Ye. you're hearing a buzzing sound, that is my fault. So uh, I, I take uh, <laughs> full responsibility. We think that it may not show up in the recorded audio and that I'm the only one who has to suffer through it. And I hope that's the case. So let us know in the comments um, and I'll go harass the audio engineer. Um, okay, Chris, we're discussing a topic which is mm -hmm. vertical SaaS. Mm. And vertical SaaS is all the rage uh, with VCs. And I actually have some fresh data from our friend Hadley at uh, ENIAC. Great guy, Hadley Harris. So they just put out a new report, uh, which you guys can find on their website. It says that, uh, here, vertical SaaS, 21% of VCs in their survey uh, are focused this quarter on vertical SaaS. And that's the only thing that's more, more of a focus is AI at 27%. Mm. AI applications at 27%, AI infrastructure 16%, vertical SaaS 21%. So it really is a big uh, you know, segment for, yes. uh, for VCs. Also, um, I was just watching this 10-year-old you know, talk that David Sachs uh, gave. David Sachs, uh, you know, probably a lot of people know him from his um, all-in podcast, but he was also someone who's founded a lot of startups and, and, and a lot of SaaS startups uh, and who um, invests a lot in SaaS. This is a 10-year-old uh, talk that he was giving, um, and people asked him about, like, companies that he, he want, was interested in, and he was talking about vertical SaaS back then, 10 years ago, so it's not a brand new thing. And honestly, like, I feel like I'm very confused by the concept of vertical SaaS because mm -hmm. my understanding is that the whole point of startups was to build horizontal platforms. Like, that was kind of a... a um, you know, something that everyone understood was what right. you were supposed to do. Uh, and I'm very confused about why vertical SaaS exists at all. Um, so you're a VC. Uh, what, what am I missing? What's going on here? So excellent question. And part of this is that things like vertical SaaS go in and out of fashion. In fact, the term vertical SaaS is just a new rebranding of enterprise software because that's essentially what it is. It's enterprise software targeting a particular industry. And we dress it up and call it vertical SaaS because we don't like using terms that are considered old. We like using terms that are considered new, just like SaaS is itself a rebranding of on-demand or application service provider or what have you. So it's essentially a rebrand. So the thing that I would say is that vertical SaaS, or whatever you want to call it, has always been around, has always been the same sort of business, which is to say, it all depends on which market you target. So vertical SaaS is focused vertically, right, on a particular industry of some kind. And the big thing is, oh, is that limited in size? The reason we as venture capitalists and entrepreneurs like horizontal platforms is because they offer the prospect of an enormous market and market size is one of the top considerations for venture investments. And so with vertical SaaS, you are essentially making a trade-off. You're saying, 
I'm going after a smaller market, but there's going to be less competition and I can serve that market better than any horizontal competitor. And the bet is that I have found an overlooked market that is big enough to make me enormously wealthy, even though most people have ignored it. And that's essentially what the bet is, right? The bet is there's a vertical market that has specific needs that is actually big enough to support a venture scale business. And I see these all the time, right? So I can't tell you, for some reason, I see this a lot. People who build uh, vertical SaaS for barbershops, hair salons, nail salons, and the like. And the point about their needs being different than a horizontal need is absolutely true. The point about the need being large enough is the thing I question. And the fact that I've seen so many of them indicates to me that there's an issue because vertical SaaS going after something that is essentially B2B to C, where the reason why people do barbershops, nail salons, et cetera, is because they go to barbershops and nail salons. They're like, wow, this thing is so antiquated. I can easily build something better. The problem is you're not the only one having that thought. So are all the other people. I prefer the kind of vertical SaaS where it's like, hey, wow, we can build this great vertical SaaS solution for chicken sexing, which nobody knows about. And therefore, I can actually sweep up this entire market. And the big question then becomes, is chicken sexing a big enough market? So I would come across vertical CRM software a lot in my last business because mm-hmm. I mean, we were a horizontal uh, platform, but uh, you know we've worked with a lot of different verticals, and we have tar- had target verticals, and a lot of those target verticals had their own CRM platform that we had to integrate with. Um, a um, you know an example that'd be like law firms, like there's I forget now what it's called, uh, but there's a a law firm specific uh, CRM platform, and uh, you know all the law firms are using it. And at the time, at least, uh, they're all migrating away from that and towards Salesforce, essentially, um, which might just be because that CRM, like law firm specific CRM platform to suck because um, uh, they kind of cornered the market and they didn't feel the need to, to keep up. Um, like, so, so that law firm specific CRM platform would fall into vertical SaaS that isn't venture scale, but that's just like a good small business. That's while the venture, like the VC type vertical SaaS businesses would be, let's say Toast, which is mm-hmm. something like ERP or I don't know, billing type. Point of sale plus a variety yeah. of other things. Focused on, so it's kind of like Square, but for restaurants only or something like yes. that. Um, yes. And what they're thinking is, let's say, like half of Square's market is restaurants. Therefore, this is like actually a massive vertical. It's not that vertical, actually, or something mm-hmm. like that. Yes, exactly. No, and, and there's there's similar areas where you know we think of it as a vertical, but it isn't. So, for example, the area of what's known these days as femtech. It's like ah, I've always thought that. You know, if you are focused on femtech, it's great because you're going after a niche market that represents the majority of humanity. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. More than 50 percent of people. Yeah. Uh, but the reason but the, the, the other underlying question is why there's this focus on vertical SaaS right now. 
And the answer is that venture capitalists and entrepreneurs perceive it as safer and less risky in this current environment. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is that SaaS is a very proven business model. And therefore, the metrics associated with determining whether or not a company is going to succeed are very well known. And it makes it easy for the entrepreneur to target those metrics and for the VC to evaluate those metrics. The other thing is these businesses tend to be much more predictable. In other words, as long as you have a smaller number of customers who love it and are using it like crazy, you can probably find a way to get it to a larger number of customers. And so there's a perception of lower risk. Now, I keep emphasizing that there's a perception of lower risk because there is no such thing as, oh, I've just found this thing that's lower risk and, and I'm just going to exploit it. Because, of course, the issue is just like what you said at the beginning that Hadley and the folks at ENIAC had realized, which is that vertical SaaS is so perceived as safe that it's now being flooded by entrepreneurs and flooded by investors. And by definition, vertical SaaS is fine if you, are found, if you have found a market that nobody else is going after. But vertical SaaS, where everyone is going after the same market, is no safer than any other business model. My... So, so I was listening to this David Sachs kind of justification of why at the time, 10 years ago, he thought vertical SaaS was, was good. And, you know, his explanation was, you know, a lot of the horizontal platforms um, are, have already been built and a lot of the opportunities are in, uh, you know, more vertical platforms. And, you know, if you think about it, that, that's not true, right? Like there was Zoom at least. That yes. was an amazing horizontal opportunity. And it was actually a super obvious horizontal opportunity. Like, you just took WebEx and you made it not suck. Right. Um, but, but there are others. Like, I think uh, uh, a lot of like, these database type platforms, like Snowflake, um, stuff like that, they're all horizontal platforms. Like, there were a lot of horizontal opportunities. And presumably, right, let's say if you really want to be in SaaS, there are a lot of really good horizontal SaaS opportunities that people are, are are missing. And, you know, my, I thought the whole point of startups was you wanted to be 10 times Amazon, right? And if it's like, if you're not like aiming high, if you're not aiming for something really big, maybe 10 times Amazon's a little bit too ambitious, but if you're not aiming really big, like, you just shouldn't be in the startup game. You should be in, you know, the private equity game. You should be in doing something else. Isn't this kind of like you telling me that VCs don't actually believe that you should be thinking big and aiming for like massive outcomes or, or, or is there something I'm misunderstanding? No, I mean, I think that you are. or uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Look, at the end of the day, the first million is a lot more valuable to an individual than the 999th million dollars. And so as a result, if you ask most people in life what amount of money would be enough so that they would never have to work again, they'd probably give you an answer like $20 million, Yeah, which is a lot of money. 
but it does not require you to build an Amazon or a, a Facebook in order to be that. Now, you need to build an Amazon or Facebook to be a multi-multi-billionaire, but you don't need that to make $20 million. And at the end of the day, the entrepreneurs, the ones who are not megalomaniacs, would probably be pretty content. If I went to every entrepreneur as they were starting a company and said, I've got a deal that I will strike with you right now, which is that I will guarantee that you'll make $20 million off this company, but I will cap the amount of money that you make at $20 million. 99.999% of entrepreneurs would say, done. And then there'd be a few Bezoses and Zuckerbergs who'd be like, fuck that. I think I can be a multi-hundred billionaire guy. I'm going for it. And that's fine. That's one of the things that sets those folks apart. And then on the venture side, the venture capitalists are also responding to incentives. So venture capitalists, of course, their greatest dream is to be the lead investor in an Amazon or a Google or a company like that that just becomes a trillion-dollar company and makes their name forever and allows them to basically write a Hall of Fame ticket. But they're also concerned on a day-by-day -day basis of how do I raise my next fund? Because as I like to point out all the time, venture capitalists, once they've been venture capitaling for a while, don't have any useful skills left. And the name of the game has got to be, I've got to continue being a venture capitalist. And to do that, I need promising deals. And while you can talk it to your blue in the face about how venture capital is based on a power law and we're building a 20 company portfolio and we only need two of them to succeed and all those various things, which are true. The fact is LPs get nervous if they don't see that there are companies that are doing well. And so mixing in some of these vertical saps that may be capped on the upside, but give you something to talk about in quarterly reports and annual meetings to keep the LPs pacified is actually useful. So I think that the focus on vertical SaaS is a reflection of the incentives. And the fact is that neither entrepreneurs nor venture capitalists are purely incentivized to go for the maximum possible expected value. Right. So it is true that if you're building a vertical SaaS company, you're, you know, it's just like a less ambitious company to build than if you're building a horizontal company and a platform in, in, and that can be fine or it cannot be fine, but you kind of have right. to know that that's what you're, you're doing. Toast is a great example. So toast, uh, I'm going to check right now because I don't want to be, I don't want to misspeak. Um, Toast's market cap right now is $9 billion. That is great. That's a lot of money. But it is nowhere near an Amazon, a Google, a Facebook, or what have you. And you are definitely going after something smaller. If you went to entrepreneurs and said, hey, would you like to have the success of Toast? The answer would be yes, I will take that, please. Thank you. And by the way, you know, one of the, the funny intersections with Toast is that when I was at Harvard Business School, I took an entrepreneurial finance class from the legendary Bill Salman. It's a legendary class from a legendary professor. I remember thinking that Salman was so grizzled and distinguished at the time I took the class. I also now realize he was younger when he taught the class to me than I am now, which is terrifying. But I happened to have a chance to catch up with him at a an event at Harvard Business School last year. And I was chatting with him and I'm fortunate enough that he remembered me and somehow he amazingly looks almost the same as he did 30 years ago. But what he 25 years ago, but 
I asked him, I'm curious, Bill, what's your most successful investment of all time? Because Bill has been teaching at Harvard Business School for 30 plus years or more. And he got a chance to invest in all the best companies coming out of Harvard Business School. And he said, Toast. And so Toast is a huge success. But $9 billion is not $3 trillion. So as an entrepreneur, what, what are the, so, 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 I, so I get what you're saying, right? Which is mm -hmm. like, hey, vertical SaaS is just going to be smaller. And that's in a way the opposite of what you're told that you should be doing. But that's what everyone, a lot, most people don't actually believe what they're saying that you should be doing. And they're actually fine with smaller smaller outcomes like most vcs they're fine if you have a 10 billion dollar outcome they don't need you to have a 10 trillion dollar outcome um even though that's not what they say um yes. and it's the same thing most entrepreneurs are fine with a 10 billion dollar outcome um and they, and they don't actually care about getting the 10 trillion dollar outcome and fine like i understand that but what like how do i or anybody listening to the podcast decide what I want to do. Like, should I be okay with building a vertical SaaS business or some type of verticalized business that has a smaller potential outcome? Or should I really reach for the stars? And um, it, because what you're told is it's just as hard to do something that's massive as to do something that's middling. Right. The other thing that you're told, uh, and I think this is an end, like um, uh, it's actually like you want to aim bigger so that you end up smaller. So it's kind of like uh, there's a kind of like imagery, I think, in the Iliad or the Odyssey, um, where it's kind of like you're, um, uh, you know, firing a, uh, a bow and arrow and you when you can't reach the target, the target's too far for you, too weak. What you do is you aim higher so that you actually do hit the target. So this kind of like, you know, thing that happens when we aim higher, you actually end up where you want it to be. So to get to that $10 billion outcome, you're more likely to get it if you aim for $10 trillion. Um, so, so that's what you're told. Again, that's what you're told by these people who are obviously lying to you and telling mm -hmm. you because they, they don't. They, they don't actually believe they, they don't actually they're investing in vertical SaaS. but but uh you know are those two things true and and if they're not true like what how should i be thinking about this how should i be deciding what to do they are largely true and guaranteed to pay off 20 million dollars all of us would do it and that just doesn't then they would go ahead and sell that as a course and sell it for a million dollars a pop and be enormously wealthy. That's just not true. Uh, what you said is true. It is hard for companies to succeed. It is not necessarily harder for companies to succeed big than it is for them to succeed little. And therefore, you should be ambitious in what you do. But on the other hand, it's really critical that there be a good fit, that it be something that you really care about, and especially on the SaaS side, that the customers be customers that you actually enjoy serving. And this is because 
whether you're aiming big or small, chances are you're going to fail. And so if you are going to spend years of your life pursuing something that is almost certainly going to fail, it better be something that you actually enjoy and care about. Because if you do it just for the money, you're going to be bitterly disappointed. And at the end of it, you won't even have something to show for it in terms of you know, having built up relationships with people you care about or having built up your reputation in a particular industry. Yeah, it's kind of like all things being equal, you should aim bigger, but all things are not equal. And, and there are other things that matter more than market size. Um, Correct. Th that's fair. There's another element that mm, I, I don't, that isn't what you're told, at least I think, in terms of why you should be aiming for bigger markets, but is something that speaks to me, which is large potential outcomes attract, like create a lot of potential upside mm -hmm. and a lot of potential upside enables you to attract really great people, right? right. So, so if you, for, for example, right, like I am um, in the startup, like venture scale startup space and the types of investors that I deal with are people such as you, right? People such as you, I much rather spend time with you than mm -hmm. spend time with, you know, people who invest in restaurants, right? And th th that's, you would not spend your time investing in restaurants and the types of people that I'm interested or like, say, David Kenny, who I uh, know relatively well, probably wouldn't know me or talk to me if I was a, a guy who ran restaurants in New Jersey. Right. Even though maybe I, I'd have more money. Um, Could be very lucrative, especially if you're backed by the mob. Right. So th there's there's something about potential upside yeah. uh, that somehow enables you to collaborate with the people who are of, of the highest possible caliber mm -hmm. and presumably, l let's say, uh, you know, uh, Facebook was able to collaborate with people of higher caliber than Toast, um, who are both, you know, Boston-based Harvard, um, you know, uh, startups. Just back when Facebook didn't, wasn't huge yet, um, it was just the fact that it could potentially become so huge that mm -hmm. enabled them to get Peter Thiel, uh, Mark Pincus, and uh, Reid Hoffman as their initial and Sean Parker is their initial investors. That's right. And again, if you think about it, it all comes back to the incentive structures. So for everyone other than the entrepreneur, it's kind of like a lottery ticket. Even the investors are going to invest in a portfolio of 20 or 30 companies. And so your goal should be maximize expected value. And thinking big maximizes expected value because it makes the value of success greater and greater. And so by definition, people are going to be attracted to it, whether it is an advisor, an investor, an employee or what have you. Because guess what? That employee who is not a founder is not running the same risks. They are being paid and they have the ability to go and join another company. And if it fails, it doesn't. To actually try it. But the incentive structure is different.
cost of failure is relatively low, which means that the cost of buying a quote unquote lottery ticket is so low that you might as well just do it. For an entrepreneur, the cost of buying that lottery ticket is three to four years of their life. That's a big deal. And so that's why you end up in a situation where if you are willing to take on the risk of being the founder of a company that is likely to fail, that you're dreaming big, people are going to flock to you because they're getting free lottery tickets. Off your um, the, the risk that you're taking. So it's kind of like you're taking the risk. Yeah. They're getting more upside um, for the same ballpark cost and same ballpark risk. You also get more upside, but you're taking on a lot more risk. That's right. And then the thing that you're getting, and it depends if this matters to you or not, is uh, access to higher quality people. That's right. So let me give you an example. Uh, I was an advisor to a company called usertesting.com that went public in November of 2021 and eventually was taken private by Toma Bravo. The IPO and then the subsequent take private made the founder, CE, the founder, former CEO, who is a friend of mine, very wealthy. And as an advisor, I only got maybe one two hundredth of what he got, something like that. And that was legitimate because he was the one who put many, many years of his life into it and devoted himself fully to it. And I occasionally talked to him on the phone. That 200th was still substantial, at least for someone like me, who is not as rich as many people think. Lottery ticket happened to pay off. And lottery every single day. So that's why it makes sense for people to Take a chance on entrepreneurs with a big vision. Okay. If I want to attract the very highest quality people, right? So let's say, uh, you know, Reed, if I want Reed Hoffman to mm -hmm. lead my uh, Series A, right? Um, or if I want, um, let's say, uh, Bill Gates or Jeff mm -hmm. Bezos to be mm -hmm. angel investors in my business. Right. Right. I assume. I don't know. My, my question is, I'm not going to say what I assume. I'm going to ask you what what needs to be true for them to be interested in my business. Right. Um, so it's not just like, you know, the top tier people, but kind of like the top 30 people in the entire world. Like what? What is it that motivates them that would get them excited enough to get in, like put in some time into helping me succeed? Well, as you know, uh, one of the things I've had the privilege to do is to spend some time researching and even spending time with some of these people who are truly built different, as they would say in the NBA. And... Ironically enough, I think that the thing that really sets them apart is that ability to think big, to think bigger than the rest of us. And that is possibly something that was inborn because Jeff Bezos had an expansive vision for Amazon when he was just founding it before anyone knew who he was or what Amazon was. 
and Reed had an expansive vision for LinkedIn when he first set out. And because that approach helped them succeed, that's the same approach they look for in their investments. Sometimes it's successful, sometimes it isn't. So let me give you three different examples, one of which clearly successful, one of which not successful, one of which remains to be seen. Successful example. Reed famously is the Series A lead investor in Airbnb. And Reed has told the story many times. Reed didn't invest in their seed round because the person who introduced them to Reed or was trying to introduce them to Reed described it as, uh, it's like couch surfing. And Reed was like, that doesn't sound interesting at all. And fortunately, he got another crack at it because a different friend came to him and said, no, you really need to talk to these founders. They are incredible. He's like, I don't know. I heard about this, like, none of this couch surfing thing. They're like, no, no, no. The vision is much bigger. Please take a meeting. So he told them, yeah, you can be at the offices of Greylock on a Sunday afternoon. And he met with them. And he says, so how do you guys see this? And they said, you know, we see ourselves as the eBay for space, physical space. And he's like, ah, this is, these are not, these are guys who are thinking big. These are not guys who are thinking small and how do we make couch surfing more effective? These guys are saying, we got an entire world of underutilized assets. How do we make them leverageable? And he told them within five minutes, I'm going to write a term sheet and invest in you guys. And let's spend the rest of this meeting figuring out how we can make this opportunity as big as possible. Hey, can I ask you a question about that? Mm -hmm. Okay. I assume the reason they talked about themselves originally as couch surfing, but paid. Um, which is actually how I thought of Airbnb when it first came out, because I actually use Couchsurfing a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and we have some questions here. Yes, I noticed uh, there are some chat questions. That's yeah, so cool. let's let's pull them up. We have Surge. Surge says, good morning from D.C. Yes, by the way, special notes to the listeners and watchers of Blitzscaling a Startup. I actually met Serge in person in Washington, D.C. this year. So if you are, in fact, a listener. All right. And then we have Anthony. Anthony says, I love the topic of this podcast. So thank you, Anthony. Thank I you. Much appreciated. <laughs> okay. So. Uh, so, so, so everyone, if you're listening to this live, um, you know, please, you know, go ahead and ask us questions. Um, I, I have the chat up here, so I'll see them. And then also, if you're listening to this not live, uh, tune in to our live streams. They're at uh, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on Fridays uh, on LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, Kick.com as well now. So. Um, there you go. Uh, all right. So uh, Airbnb, they originally pitched themselves as uh, couch surfing, but paid. All right. And then they changed it, presumably through coaching from YC uh, to be, you know, uh, eBay for space. And um, I assume because I, I, I talk about my my business to people and mm -hmm. I have noticed that the vast majority of people actually don't want you to talk about it as this massive opportunity. They get really confused. So if you tell them, 
hey, I am uh, a couch surfing, but paid. They're like, oh, I, I understand what you're doing. If you say I'm eBay for space, they're like, that is not clear. Please tell me what you're doing, right? Like that is what you will hear from 99% of investors and 99% startup founders and 99% of just everybody. They actually do not want you to think about your business as a massive thing. They want your thought process to be very micro, very clear. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and then you kind of like build up and then all this is potentially there. So, so I don't know what to make of that. Like, I assume it's kind of like you have to know who you're talking to and you need to frame it accordingly or stuff like that. But uh, how would you think about that? Ah, I have a special Christier technique for dealing with precisely that situation. And then after that, unfortunately, we'll have to bring an end to the podcast because I do have a call at the top of the hour. But the specific Christier technique is what I call the gravy technique. And the reason I call it the gravy technique is based on this old saying about steaks and gravies and things like that. Because uh, if you have a steak, you put gravy on top. Anyways, the point is that you need to spend the first portion of your pitch talking about the steak, which is to say the thing that you have a lot of evidence for, the thing that you can bring out a series of numbers based on frequency and intensity of usage or the results of your early marketing campaigns or what have you. The stake is the thing that you need to be able to support with evidence. And because it's difficult to boil the ocean at the beginning, how do you prove that you're going to be eBay for space? You have to start with, I'm going to be paid couch surfing and here's why it's going to work. And then what you do is you say, but let's think about the bigger picture because if we're able to successfully build paid couch surfing, that gives us the opportunity to become the eBay for space. And by framing it explicitly as gravy rather than steak, by framing it as something that you cannot prove, but is something that you want them to consider as a possibility, you put them in a different frame of mind. And what this accomplishes is it doesn't prove to them that you will be eBay for space. But what it does demonstrate is that you can both focus on execution in the short term and think big, have a gigantic vision that could potentially put them on the map, make them billions of dollars, get them into the investor hall of fame, et cetera. So I want to bring this back to the at least nominal topic of this uh, episode, which was vertical SaaS. Can you give us a... Um, quick rundown of you know what you think the main takeaways should be for founders who are thinking of starting a business they've heard this term vertical SaaS, they've thought about it and um before we do that anthony says the backstories are so interesting thank you anthony all right so let's get to the takeaways or at least what i perceive as the takeaways the first is yes there is a fashion for vertical SaaS right now. And that is likely a reflection of the desire for safety on the part of both the entrepreneurs and the venture capitalists. The second point is that that perception of safety is somewhat illusory because in the end, even though it seems like it is safer and more certain to go after a vertical SaaS market, the fact is if you have competitors going after that same market, then it's 
basically going to be risk homeostasis. It's going to be as risky as before. So the answer for vertical SaaS is if you find an overlooked market that is a lot bigger than people think and that other people have not discovered, and it's a market that you have personal experience with or it resonates with you and it's a good fit with what you want to do, then by all means, go for vertical SaaS. But do not go for vertical SaaS just because you've heard that it's safer or it's in fashion because you're going to end up in a situation where you're going to be joining a whole bunch of other people who really have no particular expertise in that market or industry going after the same opportunity. And in the end, you're not going to get the big outcome. In fact, the right thing to do is to have that big vision because the expected value of that big vision is higher and the probability of succeeding is not necessarily lower. And of course, the way you do that is you use the gravy technique to have an initial stake an initial thing that you can prove, that you can support, that people will fund you for, and then open it up to the big picture vision, the gravy, the cream on top, that may give you the opportunity to ultimately build an enormously valuable company. All right, Chris, uh, thank you. I will let you jump. Um, I'll give you, hopefully, your three minutes to, uh, to transition to wherever you're taking your call. As you know, I'm, I'm going fortunately I'm taking it here and I don't prepare for anything. So there's no need for transition, but I appreciate the extra time and I appreciate especially our listeners and our viewers, especially Serge and Anthony who joined us live. And again, don't forget, Serge got the chance to see me in person. Anthony may very well get a chance to see me in person in the future. So if you are on the lookouts, you might find those opportunities and you can do that by following me on social media, obviously at chrisye.com, at chrisye on Twitter, refuse to call it X, on LinkedIn and other places like that. And you might just find a posting saying, hey, I'm in your town. And then you can reach out. And you'll be luckier than me because we have never met in person. So The day is coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, People don't know this, but you are about to be spending some time in the United States. And I think the day will that we will physically meet each other. And... I'm very curious as to whether Julian will be surprised by the actual height that I am. Uh, I, I've been told that you're taller than, than you seem. Simply because people just see the head and they just make assumptions. We'll see. It'll be interesting. Bye, Chris. See you next Thank week. Thank you so much, Julian.